Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal by George Packer. It's his new book. George Packer is a US journalist, novelist and playwright. He's maybe best known for his work for The New Yorker and The Atlantic regarding US foreign policy. And there was the book The Assassin's Gate, America in Iraq. Uh, George Packer also wrote The Unwinding, An Inner History of the New America, which won the National Book Award for nonfiction. He's never thought of leaving America, even though New Zealand's mentioned as a bolt hole in this new book. George Packer, good morning. Thank you for coming on with us. It's my pleasure, Jim. Uh, George Packer finds the U.S. caught in a cold civil war between incompatible versions of the country after its near-death experience with Donald Trump. I think that's from your publisher. I'm just quoting a blurb. I'm quite, before I get into your book, I'm quite interested in what commenters say underneath mainstream media articles on places like the Fox News website. And uh, a very common thread is that America was still somehow prosperous under Trump, whatever his failings, yeah. failings and falsehoods. It seems from the outside more than just a right of centre political view. And the argument is that Trump may have been re-elected if it hadn't been for COVID. I know you are the very opposite of a Trump fan, but what is presumably helping propel his high polling numbers among Republicans is this feeling of further societal disintegration since he left. Well, if Trump does get elected again, it will be because of, to, to be simplistic about it, the price of gas. It will not be because people actually want to return to the chaos, um, the the erosion of democracy, the violence, um, the the vulgarity of his of his first four years. It'll be because people think Biden has not managed the economy well. Inflation remains pretty high. And uh, people do remember Trump's years as being at a time of economic prosperity, which they were. And I think the, the polling numbers may be a little bit off right now because it's th- these are sort of popularity numbers. And they're telling us what do people think of these two men? And they don't much like either of them. But once it becomes a choice, this guy or this guy, I do think that Biden's abysmal ratings will go up. And he's actually done quite a few important things, passed laws that have uh, begun to bring back manufacturing and high tech to parts of the country that had really been forgotten. Whether the public knows, I don't know. Biden doesn't talk he, he can't really uh advocate for himself he's so unseen as a leader but uh so it's it's a shame that his successes are so little known um but every time people fill the car with gas they see that the price is high and that kind of erodes uh biden's support just quoting again a beggar nation a failed state no one is going to save us we are our last best hope, the title of the book. So it's worse than when America was riven over race in Vietnam in the late 1960s. I mean, it can't be worse than the Civil War, but it's that bad. Um, 1968, I was a kid, I was eight, was also a really scary time, in some ways more spectacularly scary with the war and major riots and assassinations. The fundamental problem in 68 was disorder. It was sort of the old sources of 
authority falling apart. And I think the fundamental problem in 2020 was lack of solidarity, lack of any social cohesion, the ability of a demagogue like Trump to set Americans against each other very easily over anything, over whether to wear a mask uh, during the pandemic. And that lack of solidarity and lack of social trust was just deadly, literally deadly uh, with COVID and with politics. And it remains deadly. We, we still have this sense that those guys, the other side, are not real Americans. They want to destroy the country. And so we have to do everything possible to keep them out of power or else they will destroy the country. It's an existential threat every time we have an election. Um, and that is perhaps a, a bit more of an echo of 1861 than of 1968. Uh, not that anything on that scale is going to happen, but the feeling of, of absolute hatred and estrangement from one's own countrymen, that's, that's something new in my life. I, I, I don't think we had that. We had a lot of conflict in the 60s, but we didn't have that sense of being divided into two mutually hostile, um, hateful blocks, which now seems so much like the permanent uh, state of our of our politics. Yes, it does. And my opinion doesn't matter here, but I am old enough to recall the United States. Whatever seethed underneath the surface of things, still being emblematic of democracy, the guarantor of the free world, and still a hugely self-confident country with ongoing visions and, and new frontiers. So what happened? Oh, that's such a complicated question, Jim. And this goes back to the 70s. I think all of this really started in the 70s, which if you live through it, seemed like a real nothing decade, but in retrospect, was pretty important. One was the end of the industrial economy and the beginning of the information economy. So huge areas of the country began to lose their economic foundation, to hollow out um, both industrial and farm areas. And that became a kind of geographic divide between cities that were prospering with technology and finance and rural areas or small towns or even some large towns in the heart of the country that were dying. So a huge economic shift that that left a, a lot of people sort of redundant and disposable. And at the same time, a huge shift in the complexion, literally, of Americans, both the rise of a black middle class that came out of the achievements of the civil rights movement, and the arrival of mass immigration from all over the world, from everywhere, South Asia, East Asia, Africa, Latin America, as well as Europe. And those two things together gave a fairly large number of Americans, and to be really simplistic, many of them in the white working class, the feeling that they no longer counted that they had lost their place at the heart of things, white families as well as black families. So the center couldn't hold. And of course, there's always change going on in a country as dynamic as ours. But 
those two changes together created this vast gulf between basically Americans with a college education and the tools to thrive in the information economy. And those people mostly live in the cities and in suburbs, and they are of all races. And the Americans who felt that they um, were no longer able to hold their family together, hold their life together, or hold their country together. Their country was becoming something alien. And those were mostly white Americans without a college degree, mostly in rural, small town America. And that's sort of the lineup today, although it's more complicated than that, because oddly enough, Trump has began to do better among black and Latino Americans in 2020 than he did in 2016 but mostly among working class Black and Latino. So I really do think the class divide between those with a college education and those without is the fundamental divide in this country. And it determines so much about your view of culture and of social issues and of change um, and of uh, politics. Last Best Hope is the book America in Crisis and Renewal. And we're speaking with George Packer. That's an interesting analysis. You're describing a lot of the so-called free world, though, when you say, look outside, our bridges are buckling, another factory closes, schools are failing to educate children, hospital beds are overflowing, our citizenry seems to be going through cognitive decline. I'm I'm paraphrasing. And yet yet it's not just democracies. Russia's in trouble for different reasons. So's China, probably. India isn't short of internal dissent. Same with Brazil, which seems to be a mess. Maybe also this is a permanent state of humanity, George, and the digital age has parted the curtain on what always goes on, but maybe not as visibly. Or you could say, perhaps similarly, the digital age has accelerated change way beyond our ability to absorb it and to thrive or even survive in it. I mean, think of how much daily life is different today from, say, in 1995. And that causes huge unease and discontent and division. Um, It's a bit, you could say, like, to, to use another historical period, the turn of the 20th century, when suddenly cities and cars and airplanes and radio and uh, electricity began to accelerate life, to change life, and to change also the structure of the family, the structure of the workplace. The beginning of the industrial age and the beginning of the digital age are both enormous uh, revolutions. And we human beings cannot keep up with our own inventions. We can't adjust to them uh, adequately. We can't um, figure out how to make them work for us as opposed to becoming their slaves, which is how I often feel with my phone sitting here beside me. Um, And yeah, there's a a kind of loneliness that results an isolation there's an epidemic of loneliness in this country i don't know if that's true in the other countries you named um certainly in russia there must be and japan um and i think it's just an incredibly fast pace of change and a sort of um 
the change has displaced human beings in a weird way. I mean, there's a sense in which we ourselves as human beings no longer are certain of our place at the center of things, which we've always uh, assumed. Yeah. AI is a great example of we are rushing into AI without knowing what it might do and what dangers it might hold. And I think we're doing it because it seems to offer like a solution to the ailments of being human. Oh, we no longer have to have bodies. We no longer have to decay. We no longer have to be stumped by complicated problems. We can outsource it all to this machine. And there's almost like a relief in being able to set down the burden of being human and and, and giving it over to a computer. Um, this may be getting a little bit too uh, high in the sky, but you you started me thinking about it. <laughs> oh no, I mean it's a common theme in the past, isn't it? Welcome to our new overlords. So I think we I think we can latch onto that. Can I ask you? And again, this is a complicated area. To synopsize, if you wouldn't mind, the four incompatible versions of the US, uh, in your view, that, that that mean the center cannot hold. Could would, could you summarize them for us? I call them free America, smart America, real America, and just America. Free America is basically Reagan, Thatcher, free market capitalism. Get the government out of the way, cut taxes, cut regulations, and we'll have the best possible society. <clears throat> and that was a dominant idea in this country really for decades, starting with Reagan and continuing through Clinton, and you could even say up to Obama. Smart America is the idea of education as the key to a successful life, professional uh, success in the sectors of the knowledge economy, like finance, technology, law, um, engineering, education, the areas that have been growth areas in the last few decades. Real America is essentially the road to Trump. It's the idea that there are Americans who are the real ones. They live in the small towns. They are white Christian Americans. They work with their hands. They may, might not have gone to college, but they're the heart of the country. They fight our wars. They grow our food. I'm practically quoting a speech by Sarah Palin who I think was sort of the original real American back in 2008. And she was also the John the Baptist who gave way to Trump. So it's populism of a right-wing sort and nationalism, and it's has a hard edge to it. Most Republican voters are no longer voting on the basis of tax cuts, deregulation, and business. They're voting on the basis of immigration, crime, and what it means to be an American. And finally, just America is a also a sort of populist rebellion like real America. And in many ways, it reflects it. But it's on the left. And it's the social justice movements of the last 10 years that sort of reached their fever pitch during the summer of 2020 after the killing of George Floyd. And that's a very powerful narrative of essentially an America made up of oppressor groups and oppressed groups very monolithic there's no subtle overlap you are your identity and your identity tells us whether you 
are in that position of oppressor or oppressed. It's a very powerful idea among college students. Um, and it has kind of overthrown the more sort of meritocratic equal opportunity thinking of smart America. So these are sort of like family quarrels on each side. It's a generational conflict between um, a kind of satisfied liberal meritocracy that thought things were ba basically getting better here and a rebellious younger generation that thinks we are forever locked in um, in a state of original sin. Yeah, interesting categories. I noticed that with real America, you don't imply that they're the deplorables, you know, to use Hillary Clinton's term once. You say that all of your four categories have their place and their strength and their integrity, which you think in other circumstances might mesh better than they are. Could you also add rich white America, black America, poor white America, Latino plus America, rainbow America? I suppose they fit into the categories you've described, but race is also a prominent part of your rancor now. Yeah, I mean, race is the fundamental concern of just America. It is really about race uh, and more broadly about identity, sexuality, gender, etc. The way I'm describing it is not so much by racial group or ethnic group or uh, regional group, but by the attitude and idea about what the country is. Elsewhere in your thinking, just America, that last category, uh, wants to avoid conversations inimical to it as well. I mean, free America I think you think pulls the ladder up after itself, as does smart America. And exactly. and real America's voice is, is ridiculed as soon as it opens its mouth. I, I noticed when the song Rich Men North of Richmond came out and caused such a stir, and the guy seems to be liberal, not redneck, immediately there were pieces in liberal magazines picking it apart as a lament for lost white privilege. And you can see that point of view as well uh, in... in in the song if you want to but everything is also assessed now in terms of identity isn't it so what is the way through that well in the last part of the book i try to bring us back to a politics that's based on class and on the idea of creating an economy and a society where everyone can thrive and and where large groups of people aren't just being left for dead, in some cases, literally, whether that's each new generation of badly educated young black children in the cities, or whether it's uh, new generations of young white people in the country who are dying of fentanyl overdoses, um, or in car crashes, or committing suicide. There is this despair among young people that is um, that crosses over all these lines if our political groups could see where class interests lie and where coalitions might be built based on economics, based on um, wanting more equality, more social mobility, I think it would be a less toxic environment because identity is, it's permanent and it's, it's not nothing we choose. So we're being defined and categorized by these qualities that we didn't choose. Um, and, and that really there's not much to, to be done about. But 
if if politics in this country were closer to what it was during the New Deal era and, and the post-New Deal era, um, where workers had more power and more money, where corporations had less power and were even broken up if they get to be monopolies, I just think politics would be less a death match uh, between groups than it would be an argument, you know, an ugly argument, but an argument in which there is some possibility of a common good. We don't have that idea anymore. There maybe, is no such as a common good. Maybe Biden could have been that kind of president, you know, getting together with people of disparate views in, in the old smoke-filled rooms of yesterday, but maybe he was too old when he became president to have the energy to do that. I don't know. Well, I think that's true. He was too old. The smoke-filled rooms really no longer work because everything is now put out in public on social media and politicians are more interested in their brand than in the deals that they can make. And so most Americans probably couldn't tell you what the three major laws that Biden passed were and what they do. They could tell you, uh, you know, what happened at the Oscars. Um, they could tell you what, uh, you know, is going on at the southern border, the kind of the more hot flashpoints. But the old business of politics just doesn't seem to excite or attract people, including politicians. John Adams, one of your founding fathers when he was old, said Polybius's theory of regime cycles had been the creed, creed of his whole life. It's the theory of history repeating itself. Um, so democracy tending to break down into anarchy, and then you need a strong man. So you get mob rule, you get oligarchy, uh, and then you get tyranny. And mm. obviously you are not in that grave state, but you have elements arguably of all three in America at the moment, don't you? Yeah, we do. And in this sense, it should not be a any great surprise. We have, we're going the way so many other countries have gone. There was this self idea that we were exceptional, that history did not apply to us. We created a society out of nothing, built on a democratic constitution, that there could only be democracy on these shores. And instead, we seem more and more to me like Poland or Brazil um, or even Russia with an, a kind of unhappy aging population and a, uh, a drift toward authoritarianism. And, and as you say, it is a repetition of history. And so I, I don't know that it means it's a permanent decline. I, I, I'm not quite ready to accept that, but it does mean that we have grown complacent and have allowed things to drift to a point where suddenly all it takes is one election and then a second election to lose some precious things. George Packer is with us, last best hope. A bit more to ask you, you know, without vision the people perish, 
the old saying, and you say America has lost faith in just about everything. You want to make America again without the G in the middle, which I thought was neatly put, and you've described how you would ideally do that. You want a kind of self-actualizing revolution, and that's hard to make happen, isn't it? Everybody involved, you know. In one chapter of the book, I go through all these traits that I think are recognizably American, like loud voices and easy smiles and first name basis with people you don't know and breezy behavior from your waiter and billionaires wearing jeans with holes in the knees um, and a certain propensity for violence and for sort of feeling easily disrespected leading to violence. So I have all these different qualities that are obviously not uniquely American, but I think they do describe us. And foreigners are much quicker to see what we have in common than we are. Two people who might be from different parts of the country and, you know, one from Maine and and one from San Francisco, one young and and non-binary and the other older and white and straight. But there is something a foreigner will immediately see is American beyond just the accent. And I think what it all comes down to is what Tocqueville, the great French traveler writer in America, uh, called the passion for equality, which is the desire to be as good as anyone else, to have no limits to what you can do, where you can go, who you can be, um, which gets us to American individualism as well. It doesn't necessarily lead to solidarity. It actually breaks the chains that tie peasants and kings, as Tocqueville put it. But equality is the abiding American passion. And I think that there's things you can build on those bones because they really do still define us. Look, before we go, you're a big critic of equity language. Birthing person, not pregnant woman, justice involved people rather than criminals. That was a new one on me. The the whole, as you phrase it, heavy fog of jargon that has rolled in and of which people like journalists are mortally afraid of lest they make mistakes. You know, can I say marginalized people or should I say under-resourced? You suspect mischief, I think, as if elites are keeping the rest of us off guard and wrong-footed with equity language, or have I got that wrong? No, you're absolutely right. There's something new every day, and it's a kind of constant ambush. You're always on guard for not having gotten the memo that morning that suddenly the the phrase field work uh, in in sociology or social science is is banned because it's recalls uh, images of slavery. So instead, it's practicum, which is a Latinate term that no one uses and no one knows, and it gives you the feeling that there's an a sort of in inner circle, an in-group who are making these rules and are keeping the rest of us uh, constantly guessing, constantly afraid of making a mistake that could, yeah, that could actually get you scolded for insensitivity. Um, and what is the purpose of it? Why, why are we doing this? Why this accretion of what can often be ridiculous rules like you can't say blind you can't say stand up because these are in some ways uh non-inclusive terms because some people 
are blind and some people can't stand up. I think what it does is it makes it impossible to actually solve any problems because you can't actually describe it and name it and get through the fog of jargon to see it clearly. But at the same time, it makes you feel as if you have solved it because by changing the language, you've achieved a state of goodness. So it's it's become a pretty big thing in in certain sectors, media, academia, schools, um, and you you hear phrases that you didn't hear five years ago. Now you hear them all the time, and other terms that you used to hear all the time, you no longer hear. And it's a top down linguistic revolution. It's not, not coming the way normal changes in language do with l- slow evolution at the level of the street. It's instead coming literally from small groups of experts who publish glossaries and those glossaries then influence what uh, magazine editors and college professors say. Uh, And I think all it does is it makes people resentful or afraid to speak. um, And it gives other people the feeling that they've actually somehow arrived at the promised land when in fact they're still drifting around in a sea of fog. (laughs) Uh, There's a paradox involved here, isn't there? But like the word unacceptables come to mean, uh, often come to mean, uh, describe something bad we actually have to accept. And the good old zero tolerance means uh, having to extend quite a large degree of tolerance for something we don't like. So the question, uh, the question in this, uh, if, if we return to, to the naked truth in our discourse, would our discourse become more hateful or would it paradoxically see a return of civility and more genuine inclusivity? That is a great question. I do think writers, journalists have a role to play in trying to purge our our language of some of these more nefarious uh, trends. Um, and, and language is always something that we Americans are obsessed with. Because if you can't dispel the fog, you'll never see the sunlit uplands, George. <laughs> Something like that. Well said. <laughs> um, look, well said to you. Thank you for giving us such a, a lot of time in this interview. And uh, very good of you to chat. Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. Our guest has been George Packer. All the best, George. I hope you get over your cold because that's another plus uh, speaking to us while you're not full 100%. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much.